Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Gott in Himmel, Gott in Himmel, which is, of course, German. For crikey, Fritz, this battle isn't going too well, is it? And welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the podcast that's healthily obsessed with the Second World War. Nobody does dastardly Nazis like we do. I'm 80 years on for the most important battle in the history of the world, and James Holland and I are still talking Battle of Britain for a third and final week. I mean, we were going to do one, weren't we? And then we said, but there's so much unfinished business, and now here we are. Completing the triptych, though. If we ended yes. up talking about this next week, I wouldn't be surprised. Would you, James? No, probably I wouldn't be surprised at all. Not surprised at all. And Gotten Himmel, actually, I mean, I know it's strictly speaking it's German, but really it's commando ease, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is really, isn't it? And yeah. ach, mamma mia! <laughs> when you're Italian. <laughs> and, and what's it? And Japanese is. Banzai! Banzai and Aye! Aye, Tommy Pigs! Okay. Um, today, though, we've set ourselves a challenge yeah. <laughs> where we're going to try and answer a stack of remaining questions. So we'll limit the time on each, or try to, and rattle through as many as we possibly yeah, can. We're going to try work. to do that. Won't work. It's what we're going to try to do. Um, first, a few bits of news. Uh, Gurglebox was another big success last week. We spent an hour drooling over the brilliant third episode, Karantan! It was good, wasn't it? It was really, really good. I mean, it. It just strikes you how well, how beautifully made um, Banner Brothers was, doesn't it? The whole thing. Yeah, it's just it, so... it also made me feel a bit nostalgic. <laughs> bit... It says quite a lot about me, I think, when I get nostalgic for going to Normandy, when I see kind of lots yep. of people being blown to pieces. But, but you know, <laughs> you know that I completely forgot to kind of show everyone that um, that then and now of Carentan, Carentan, yeah. Central Square. And just off there is where the uh, where the little cloisters are, where where um, yeah. uh, winter's got nicked and stuff. And it's brilliant. It's just so exciting going around there because it's a, you know it has been yeah. rebuilt and it's quite a nice town. You've got the usual things of the you know the bars and the patisseries and all the rest of it. But you've got genuine World War Two Band of Brothers history there yeah, in that yeah, very right spot. There. And you know it's yeah. it's a great place yeah. to visit. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the next Google Box will be in a few weeks' time, but of course we're back live streaming on Thursday at eight thirty as usual. Yes. Um, I've got I've I've got a couple of actual gigs this week. I've got a gig in Battersea Arts Centre on Friday night, and then Have one you? on Sunday. That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah Nature is returning. People? I've ordered to people. I've ordered my I've ordered my plastic face screens because I have to wear a face screen on stage so I don't spit on anyone. 
No way. Which I'm prone, I am prone to do. So uh, when I'm really no. going, for it. so yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, does that yeah, mean you got yeah. to sort of chop the hair off and stuff? I'm not going to cut the hair off. I'm going to call it a COVID miracle that my hair's grown back. You know, it's an ill wind that blows <laughs> no one any good. So I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose this hair. It's 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 beautiful. I keep catching sight of myself in. You know, in the mirror or in windows, and go. Who the hell's that? It's very odd. Anyway, um, if you, we've got some uh, brand new book re- recommendations for August for you. Um, so, if you're looking for something to read on your staycation, give one of these a try. We've got independent mum, uh, company members two pounds off each book from Waterstones. Uh, check out the member site for details. They're up today with links on our Patreon site. Um, we have ways uh, Patreon independent company members. If you buy all three, you'll basically get your entire month's membership. For free, for, for nothing. And the books are um, uh, London War Notes by Molly Panter Downs. This is a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, uh, uh, basically a diary of, um, of, uh, of impressions of what the war was like to live yes, through. Yes, because she, she, she's, she's living sort of just outside in, in, in Surrey, isn't she, somewhere in the yeah. country of yeah. Sussex or somewhere, Midhurst sort of way, yeah. uh, or Hazelmere. Yeah. And yeah. um, and she's going up to London regularly, and she's writing these for the um, New Yorker, isn't she? Magazine. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's for yeah. a kind of an American audience, but they're just brilliant. They're so sort of insightful and incisive, and funny, yes. really funny, and funny. But also, I mean, the, the you know the the, the the early war stuff, which I which because um, because. I put one up on that. There's a, ch- a little bit of it on the Patreon that we did. Yes. And what's very interesting about that I did um, for the day that it was written about is that there's there's really interesting stuff that you know, given given um, the endless comparisons of the COVID situation to the Second World War, endless and inevitable. Um, uh, there's the really interesting stuff she writes about people's response to the blackout. Because when people get antsy about having to wear a mask in public places, she's saying everyone's complaining about the blackout. They're trying to bend the rules. They're looking for the gap yeah. in the regulations. They're all they're all mithering and moaning and, and 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 saying, "Well, why should I have to do this? Well, it doesn't affect me." And it's the it's the same. And that's what I think. <laughs> I think that's what's really interesting is that the you know that that. And obviously, she's these are being written for, like you say, for public consumption. But but she's prepared to warts and all on a thing like that, and mm. I think that's really re- that's really really interesting in itself. Yeah. And that, that, that she's prepared to admit that, but also that that's the thing she's reporting. That um, you know that, that that at the time, no one was going round saying, "Oh, we're all of united of one purpose, and everyone's on the same page." The government wanted that of people, but they didn't necessarily get it. And no. I think that's that's. That's really, you know, that, that that's a, a fascinating insight. Then there's the, the, I don't know this next book, The Lion Rampant. What's the, what's yeah, this well, I read, I read this for, for when I was doing my Normandy book, and it's just a brilliant, brilliant um, memoir. And it was written, I think, in the early 1950s, so pretty close off the wall. And you can sort of tell. It's got a kind of real freshness to it, and it's based on his diary anyway. Um, yeah. And it's the, you know, it's it's, it's Normandy and beyond. It's, it's um, an infantryman who lands just after D-Day, um, yep. And he's in all the big battles, and, and it's just, you know, the the bewildering sense of chaos, the uh, the casual violence. Um, yep. You know, he's a beautiful writer. It's really good. It's right up there as one of the very very best memoirs I've read of action in Northwest yep. Europe in in nineteen forty forty five forty four forty five. Um, and I just couldn't recommend it more highly. It's a, it's a wonderful yep. wonderful book. Not long, you know. It's not a big book, but it's just beautifully yep. written. Yeah, yeah, and then the last enemy, Richard Hill. Oh, wow, wow. oh, what a book this is! Know, what a book! You know, written in 1942, 
um, published yep. in 1943-44, I think. Um, when was he killed? When was he? He was killed, killed in 40, 43 or forty four. So it, it, it came out around the same time that he was killed, I think. So, and, um, so there's no. So, it came so, out a little so, bit um, after because he got, he got some. I think it came out in nineteen forty two because he recovered. Because yeah. basically, he's a Battle of Britain pilot and he's incredibly good looking, incredibly dashing. All his posh mates yeah. from Oxford are all kind of you know they're they're the kind of they're the beautiful new generation that are going to yeah. sort of, you know they're going to run gilded, the country. Completely 20, gilded youth. Completely isn't it? gilded youth who are going to kind of run the country in twenty five years. And um, and his best mate Peter Pease gets killed. Um, there's a big picture of him actually, instantly in the um, in the RAF club painting of Peter Pease. Yeah. Anyway, so so he gets killed. Um, various others, Noel Agazarian, who flew the Spitfire along with John yes. Dundas, that's in the um, Imperial War Museum. Anyway, he gets shot down in his in his um, uh, and gets very very badly burnt. And he's one of yeah. uh, Mackindo's um, guinea pigs. Guinea pigs, um, yeah, and, yeah, and gets yeah. very badly disfigured. Um, and he's very bitter about it, very screwed up about it, has to go and do a sort of war bonds tour of America, hates it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Comes back, he's determined to fly again, should never have been landed anywhere near an aircraft, gets inside a Blenheim and crashes it and kills himself and his yeah. navigator. But there's, but there's, there's I mean, I, I remember reading this, um, I mean, when I was a kid, and there are some very, very striking uh, passages in it. There's a bit when he's, because he's going on and on about being on a saline drip, and he's on the saline for ages. Yes. But it, uh, uh, and there's a bit where he hears a nurse in uh, outside his room go, shh, that boy's dying in there, you know, be quiet. quiet tr- tries to quieten down some noise in the corridor, and she says that. And he hears that and thinks, no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not dying in here. I'm not going to die. And that is absolutely when you read you read a bloke's mm. personal account of that and this is i mean i think what's really interesting is is he does write this in the flush of it happening to him rather than 10 years later rather than 20 years yeah. later it's not like a paul brickhill thing so it's gone through someone else which because the you know the paul brickhill books of the 50s are the sort of famous first time round accounts like great escape downbusters and all that sort of thing it's 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 he he it's in, in lots of ways it's raw. It's a lot. It's a lot like Keith Douglas' book. You know, it's written between mm. between one action and the one that that, that takes his life. Really, isn't it? It's a, yeah. it's a it's an extraordinary book. This um, it's beautifully like, beautifully yeah. written. I mean, he's and beautifully I mean, you written. Know, this yeah, this yeah. is a guy who really has an instinctive understanding of how to write beautifully. Yeah, and, and you know, yeah. obviously, not everyone has that, and um, or very few people have that. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. It is rightly fated as yeah. I mean, it's right, you know, that and I suppose First Light are the two great books of memoirs yeah. that have come out of the of the um, Battle of Britain. And until Battle Jeff's Britain, book yeah. came 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 to the fore, you know, the last enemy was kind of stood alone. I mean, it is a yeah. it's an absolute classic. Yeah. So, London War Notes by Molly Pantadowns, The Lion Rampant, Robert Wilcombe, The Last Enemy by Richard Hidlery. Um, Two pounds off each book, buy all three, and that's your membership paying for itself. You can't say fairer than that, independent company members. Put that in your ration pack. Okay, it's time to get up in our up in the clouds. We're going to try our damnedest to rattle through these Battle of Britain questions <clears throat> as quick as we can. Um, Nick Brown and uh, Taker Twinstra ask similar questions. Um, Nick asks, just how seriously did the German army prepare for sea line or was it just a case of going through the motions? And Takey asks, did the Germans ever do any serious planning for an invasion of the UK, like preparing landing craft, selection of beaches to land, etc.? Anything that could even remotely compare to Overlord? Well, I think you could answer the last bit first. And no, it doesn't remotely not, compare to Overlord. Remo- not remotely. But they no. did do loads and loads of preparation. They kind of moved divisions yep. up to the front. They had loads of training going on. 
Um, they moved loads of Rhine river barges into the Channel yep. ports um, with a debilitating effect to their own industry, their home industry, because of course the Rhine kind of feeds the Ruhr and all the rest of it, the Ruhr, um, the, the Ruhr, you know, the industrial heartland. It's a very yeah. great fire affair. So, you know, they really couldn't do without those barges, but they did for a bit. Um, and the army were training um, and doing these um, landing exercises way through into 1941 actually yep. uh, and part of that was because it was a useful exercise to do with new recruits and partly that was because um, they wanted to give the British the impression that they were still trying it was kind of part of their deception plans for Barbarossa um, um, but I do remember talking to this guy called Franz Marson who was a lovely chap he's a baker from um, Dusseldorf um, who ended up being a machine gunner being wounded twice in yep. the eastern front and then in Italy and blah blah yep. blah anyway I remember him saying to me, saying to me um, he said said the thing is, James, it said after Zivor, I was um, I actually finally got to Britain. I went on a channel crossing and I turned <laughs> to my wife as I saw the white cliffs and I said, we would never have made it with those cliffs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, so why on earth were you still doing this, this, these invasion exercises in, in sort of April 1941? <coughs> and he said, first the invasion. So as far as April concerned, it wasn't off at all. <clears throat> really yeah but obviously it was wow. but 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 you know that's yeah. what they were told they, you know. well i mean uh, well after all i mean there's an awful lot when we talk military planning there's an awful lot of need to know goes of course goes, in, goes into military planning uh, on in, in all directions so you know what you needed to know if you are if you're say if you're you know to, to to pick an example if you're say spike milligan in your battery training to defend to defend the UK, well, what do you need to know? That do you need to know it's off? No, you don't. No. I mean, if you're uh, yeah. and if you're a if you're um uh you know if you're a, a German infantryman, do you need to know it's off? No, you don't. No. I mean, it, 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 it that of course. I mean, the the thing is, there's serious planning for an invasion, and then there's serious planning, isn't there? And the yeah. and the the th- by the time of Overlord, what's happened is that is the Allies. The Allies have—they've tried. Obviously, they've tried Dieppe, which is the one get, that gets hung up on. There's been Torch as well, and of course, Torch isn't really against the serious adversary. And there's some political um, uh, sort of chicanery going on to try and make sure that the French don't resist. Mark, and Mark then there's Sicily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's Sicily, and then there's and then there's Salerno, and you know and all these things. And, and well, and Anzio, all these things that have happened before D-Day that feed into the D-Day planning, and it's. And uh, it constitutes a spoiler for anyone who's going to get the Sicily audiobook um, or, or the book. Is there can be there, failure isn't an option. They cannot countenance failure with any of these amphibious landings. Whereas the Germans, the Germans haven't done one before. They, they, they they've never done this kind of thing. Whereas the British actually have a history of descent, amphibious descents. They were called mm. where you. Where you land on, where the navy takes some marine somewhere and busts up, dusts up the locals and see, or seizes it from the French, which is the old, the old in the old style, and no. so the, the the Germans have no history of this at all. So no matter how serious they plan, it's probably not serious enough. Is the is that they've not got well, and they have this other thing the, that they have. They have the. I mean, the big problem is they don't have joined up thinking. So and don't no. have joined up planning. So you know they've got they've got the OKW, which is this combined services general staff, which is really a very sensible idea, but they don't use it in the right way. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You, you know. So they've got. 
you know, everyone's going off doing different plans. The Luftwaffe's got its plan, the Navy's got its plan, yeah. and, and there's just yeah. no joined up thinking. And what's really interesting is, is, you know, sort of Britain, most British people were sort of living in fear of kind of sort of a fear of, 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 of paratroopers, German paratroopers, sort of, die, you know, peering in the sky. Yeah. And there were posters, yeah. you know, up go, going, going, these are what German paratroopers look like. You know, if you see one, um, yeah. you, you know, run away. <laughs> and, and I mean, literally, I mean, it's quite a famous picture, quite a famous poster. Yeah. Um, and Goering, even in the middle of September, hadn't decided whether he was going to allow his Fallschirmjäger yeah. to be used. I mean, it's just yeah. absolutely extraordinary. So, well, in answer is is yes, they planned it, they prepared it quite seriously, but they certainly didn't prepare for it seriously enough. And yeah. and I would argue that that even if they thought they were preparing seriously, it wasn't seriously, um, yeah. and it certainly wasn't enough to be able to put it off. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Michael Vicks asks not a question as such, but uh, talk a little about Tom Neal if you can. Always interesting when I've seen him interviewed or read about in your books. I mean, you're a major Tom Neal fan, aren't you, James? Well, I just got to know him very, very early on in my research. And I've known him sort of, you know, I'd known him probably best part of 20 years before he died. And he was just, always, you know, we always got on really well. Um, he was lovely. Um, he had served in Malta. So that was why I originally spoke to yeah. him. And, but I sort of got his whole life to him. And then I filmed with him a number of times. And, and you know, I just regularly kept in touch. So I, I used to go and see him quite a lot. And I got to know his sons and family and stuff and actually i did his i did his eulogy at his funeral at his memorial service so you know um which was you know a singular honor and all those sort of things yeah um and he was just a lovely lovely chap he had that he had that a lot of the british fighter pilots had this actually they had a real sort of twinkle in their eye you always got the impression that they didn't sort of take life too seriously that they kind of sort of worked hard played hard yeah um you, you know i don't think that is an entirely entirely a myth um, and, um, you know, as I said last week, you know, he had that great ability to kind of analyse his experiences. So yeah. um, uh, uh, I remember him talking about the ineffectiveness of, of, of bombing of airfields. And he said, he says it was like our first day at Northfield. He says, said it was the 3rd of September, 1940. We all took off, all 12 of us took off in our hurricanes. Uh, and he said, you know, 15 minutes later, I looked down over Northfield. The whole place was being attacked by, by Dornier 17s. Uh, and he said, couldn't see the airfield at all. The whole place had completely disappeared in clouds of dust. And I thought, how on earth am I ever, ever going to get back down again? And I said, well, obviously you did, um, because, you know, we're talking now. And he said, oh, yes, he said it wasn't a big problem at all. He said, by the time we landed back down, the smoke had cleared and we just dodged the potholes. Um, and it was just kind of, you know, it was, a, it was a sort of case in point that you can just, you know, this is what you can do. You just, just... And this is why it was so hard to destroy a, a, a fighter command yeah. airfield because they're grass. They're kind of you know 100 acres plus in size. Yeah. You need a hell of a lot of ordnance to, to to kind of knock one of those out to make it completely unusable. And because yeah. there's no runways, you would obviously take off into the wind. You know, take off into the wind and, and land into the wind. So yeah. You know, it didn't matter. You could orientate yourself any way you liked, and you can land any way you like pretty much. So a lot of them were kind of sort of you know. They were enormous, well, so you didn't have to just well, sort of go down the yeah. middle. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, Dowding and co. had thought about this beforehand, so had prepared huge piles of sort of scalpings and soil and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and bulldozers and graders. So after every attack, and they kind of whistled in and just filled them in and just rolled them all yeah. out and you just crack on. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a lot to be said for the grass airfield capable fighter aircraft, isn't there? I mean, Yes, it, there it, is. It, uh, uh, that that you know these are high performance planes and they're quite capable of you could basically land them anywhere that's flat. Yeah, uh, can't you? I mean, yeah. it, 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 that, that's quite interesting, isn't it? And then when you get onto tarmac runways and steeled runways, that the things get more complicated, don't they? That, that yeah. in fact, yeah, yeah. that airfields are a juicier target as a result. 
Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, Matthew Wilkins. uh, What did Tom Neal do after the war, by the way? Did he stay in the army? Yeah, no, he stayed stayed in. He was a test pilot, so he went back to Boscombe Down. Oh, um, wow. uh, Which was where he was when James Nicholson got the Battle of Britain's only VC. Um, He went back. He was a test pilot. He ended up doing... Some sort of he he did some sort of diplomatic job I think in the, in the right. RAF and then I think he was he was doing something to do with cars and PR in America, right? I, don't, I can't right. remember quite. I can't remember, but 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 you know he stayed in for quite a long time. You know, and he, did he fly? He would have flown everything then if he was he a flew test literally everything, literally everything. Yeah, I mean he hasn't quite got the kind of four hundred and sixty five aircraft that Winkle's got on his yeah, and his log Wiggle Brown, but he's got you know he got a heck of a lot. You know, and he and he, you know he moved from kind of sort of biplanes to. To fast jets, you know, and did all that kind yeah. of stuff. So, you know, the way the the people in that generation did, which is incredible, isn't it? Which yeah, is yeah. And he knew all those guys, you know, sort of John John Derry and all those all those yeah, people, yeah. kind of really folk. He knew them all. You know. Right. Okay. Uh, Matthew Wilkins. We're actually managing to do this. Matthew Wilkins uh, says, if German intelligence was much was much more accurate, I think he means if it had been much more accurate. Yeah. No Beppo Schmidt making it up as he went along. Could this have had any impact on Luftwaffe tactics and the outcome of the battle? Well, it certainly had an impact on Luftwaffe tactics because they'd have known what they were yeah. attacking and what they were doing, and they'd have come up with a better plan to deal with it. Um, would it have had an impact on the outcome of the battle? Well, yeah, probably. Um, not not overall, but it would have played out in a different way, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it probably gone on longer. Could have gone longer. It? I mean, but you know, it doesn't alter the fact that they didn't have enough to do what they would, what they were trying well, to do. Well, and we go, we go back to what you just, we were just talking about that you can, you can attack as many grass strips as you like, yeah. but, but, um, you know, the, 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 there are so many. I mean, the other thing, it, it, you know, if if the smoke hadn't cleared from where Tom was trying to land, he could have gone up the road somewhere else anyway. Is that yeah, is yeah, the yeah, yeah. yeah is, you course. know, Kent. Kenty's one enormous um, airstrip at this point, isn't it? Yeah. Well, he was in Norfolk, which is uh, and, now, in, now well, in, well, in Essex. But I mean, yes. But in Essex, but you know, but, yeah, but whatever. Anyway, the yeah. whole the whole of that part of the East Anglia, the whole of South East England, East Anglia is one enormous airstrip. So, so even if they, because yeah. after all, so the, I've, what, I've, what, I've, I've mentioned I mentioned numbers of uh, that they had on. I think yeah. it was the fourth of August. I, can't, I told yeah. you what they, what they got. So this is really interesting. So on sixth of July, um, the Luftwaffe has seven hundred and fifty single engine fighters, and it has. 1,200 bombers available on that yeah. particular day. Yeah. By the 28th of September, has 276 single-engine fighters left. And 750 really? bombers. Oh, that's not Stuka's good. completely gone. So it's gone yeah. from having, you know, two, two and a half thousand aircraft available to 1,200 available on any one given day in total. That, you know, and it's that... just not enough. It's not enough. Whereas on the sixth of July, the RAF has six hundred and forty-four single-engine fighters. By the twenty-eighth of September, it's got seven hundred and thirty-two. How many aircraft did the Luftwaffe field on May the tenth? They had about three thousand five hundred available to go. Right. So that is that is attrition. A punishing, punishing summer, isn't it? Yeah. And let's say. Let's say, let's say, I mean, you know, if, if we're going to be counterfactual for a moment, let's say they've won the Battle of Britain by this point, right? Yeah. With that rate of loss, and they now mount an invasion. There's absolutely no way the Luftwaffe can replicate what it was doing as a tactical air force the, the way it did in May, no. is there? No. So, the, so the, the here can't depend on the kind of tactical um, air cover and integration that it, that it, would need to operate in the way it's become used no. to 
tactically and doctrinally in 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 Poland and then in France. So what, either way, that the, the, they've come undone in that respect. So yes, so and, an and invasion fact, and, and, and that their losses are so bad in the summer of 1940, um, and um, the, the the aircraft production is, has has slowed so badly. Yeah. Um, that by the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, the following June, and let's say it's the third yeah. week of June, they still yeah. don't have as many aircraft available as they did on the 10th of May 1940. Good goodness me. Because don't forget, they still that. got the Blitz to go. And they've still got yeah, Greece. Yeah, 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 and they've still yeah, yeah, got Malta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. And all these, all all these things yet to... All these things yet to happen. So Gosh, it's just it's very... just a trip, a trip, a trip. So so yeah, so yeah. their aircraft production is not keeping pace with their losses, which is so, really bad. Which just goes to show how parlous the aircraft industry is in Germany by that stage. Because obviously, the only reason why they've got more aircraft in 1939, because they started earlier at a, at yeah. a greater rate. But yeah. but you know. But, Britain is massively outstripping them by 1940. But but this but this also but this I mean uh, this also shows doesn't it you know that we've got Germany is doing the things it has to avoid doing. <laughs> it, yeah. it has to avoid getting into attritional situations because it doesn't have the depth to to, uh, to meet them and to yeah. to 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 face them has it hasn't it? But it's in that situation they've got themselves into the situations they desperately needed to avoid. Because yeah. the leadership, the leadership can't think further than three weeks ahead. No. basically, is what's happening. Well, it's because, and, and, because, it's because and it goes back to what we said, said, we, we, we yeah. said before that the whole way of the German way of war is to get your victories really quickly. You get them in. You yeah, know, Battle of Britain is supposed to be over in four days. You know, yeah. uh, from from the from the launch <laughs> of the of, of Adlatar yeah. Eagle Day. Yeah, it's supposed to be four days later, done and dusted. Um, you, you know the Blitzkrieg in France. You know that's all about kind of winning in a matter of weeks. I mean, yeah. You know the whole thing is designed for this short, sharp battle of annihilation. Yeah. So when, so the moment they start getting into a kind of attritional, long, drawn-out war, that's when they're it all in, starts to creak. They're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a brief break now. Um, uh, uh, with more of your questions, I've got a question that's been bugging me that I, I'm going to, I, I need to ask after the break, actually, which we'll, uh, we'll, we'll come back to. Um, we'll see you in a tick. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back to We Have Ways to Make You Talk. Uh, James Holland and I are talking about the Battle of Britain again. I mean, you're not stuck in some sort of lockdown time warp where every day is identical. But we are talking about the Battle of Britain again. But before <laughs> we do... Makes me feel very happy. Makes me feel very happy. <laughs> before we do, I think um, this wouldn't be this podcast without a digression into the subject of Normandy. James. <laughs> <laughs> Shamelessly so. Shamelessly so. Well, you yeah. posted an article the other day on your website, on Griffin Merlin, about um, how there's, there, there should be a new way to make Second World War documentary history, which is a conversation, which is some cud we have chewed on here a bit and in, and, uh, yeah. 
privately, because we do, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, we do talk to each other other than on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're not like some boy band who've been stuck together by an evil producer who never spend any time in each other's company otherwise. <laughs> Yeah, fucking alien. <laughs> the Milli Vanilli of history. Um, <laughs> um, um, <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, and 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 but you, you your program normally forty four. Well, is, I've had is, a, I've had a slightly frustrating time because um, yeah. you know the whole point. So, so, so basically, I sort of sat down with this guy called Richard Late. He's a wonderful fellow, and he yeah. has a couple of Spitfires, and he's the guy who paid for the uh, Canadian Lancaster to come over a few years ago. Do you remember it came over for wow. the summer? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. He, yeah, he just said, very, so, and very I said to him, cool. God, that was really good of you. And he said, Well, you know, I could, and I just thought, why not? It'd be nice to kind of, you know, for everyone to see it. But anyway, yeah. so so he was saying that you know how how fed up he gets with watching what he calls the crap on telly because he just felt that it was either kind of dumbing down all the time and he couldn't bear yep. the whole kind of repeating after every ad break and he, and he yep. couldn't bear the fact that it was either kind of huge sort of someone doing up a spitfire or something or some sort of gizmo or the or or, or, or you mcgregor and his brother flying around in a mark nine spitfire in a battle of britain documentary yeah. which makes no sense yeah. whatsoever and has no relevance at all apart from kind of the annoyance <laughs> of watching someone having a really nice time in a spitfire uh, <laughs> uh, 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 or he says you know you just get these kind of narrator led lots of archivers wallpaper yeah. kind of a few kind of sort of um yeah. he, he said ugly academics kind of you know yeah. talking uh, and and you know we got chatting and we kind of felt there was a, a, a different way of doing things uh, and you know, a way of doing things cheaper. And, and I always felt that you just, you know, whenever I've done films in the past that have been, pro you know, properly commissioned, it's just so frustrating because you never have the time to do everything. Everything's got to be kind of sort of stripped down and stripped down and stripped down all the time. Yep. You never get to the nitty yep. gritty. So I said, well, you know, wouldn't it be great to actually go on, on, you know, walk the ground and actually talk about it in depth? And I said, you know, yeah. it doesn't have to cost the earth because we, we're not going to buy lots of archive. We don't need that. We've got, you know, and I said, instead of having that, instead of having veterans who now are getting a little bit long in the tooth, those that are, that are still alive, let's use mm. contemporary, um, uh, contemporary voices. Let's use diaries. Let's use memoirs yeah. that were written, you know, like Robert Wilcom, for example, you know, yeah. he's just yeah. after the writing just after the war. Um, and get an actor to read it and put that over lovely kind of general views of kind of the Epsom battlefield or whatever yeah. it might be. Anyway, so 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 we made it, but obviously, you know, we made it for a kind of a fraction of the price that you would normally um, get for a, expect for a, a, an hour's. I mean, to, well, I'll tell you. I mean, you know, an hour's documentary, you know, on BBC Two, you're looking at kind yeah. of you know 175,000 quid, something like that. I yep. mean, I think we were making yep. those for about 40,000 pounds each, yeah, yeah, each yeah. episode. So, uh, uh, and still having high production values. I think that is the key. I think people expect yeah, yeah. it. They want. They want to know stuff that they don't know. They want high production value. So you want all that kind of what, what you would call post-production, which is where they do all the grading and the colouring yeah. and making yeah. sure all the sound is consistent and all that stuff. That's actually yeah. quite an expensive process, but we kind of, we did all that as well. But anyway, so it's now on Amazon Prime, finally. And it's the on Amazon thing, it was, Prime. Well, the frustrating thing was that normally it takes two to four days to upload onto Amazon Prime and, and yep. you know, it's a very good deal. You get that whole platform and all the rest of it. But because of COVID, it took yeah. 120 days congestion and everyone elbowing and their way to the front of the queue yeah, because yeah, all yeah, that yeah, stuff yeah. so it's been very frustrating but it is now on there and it's called exactly the same as the book because it was based on on the same research and you know the whole idea yeah. is that if you've kind of read the book you might be interested to see what's yeah. what it what the battlefield looked like now the place looks like yeah, yeah 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 and all that so okay uh, you know and the aim is to do the same for sicily you know we've, yep. we've as you know our with you and i gonna going over and chewing the cud me yeah. me taking you around some of the places that you've been reading about Yep. Well, I can't wait. I've got load more audiobook to do today. So, Yee. 
Uh, fortunately, so the invasion know. has the invasion has started. Thank God. Um, right. Okay. So. <laughs> Oh, finally. How are you, how you, how you liking Gavin, though? Um, well, he's an interesting character, isn't he? I mean... He hasn't got any bridges to take. No, he hasn't got any bridges to take. But this sort of self-conscious... I, I, I mean, uh, I'm going to have to talk about this another time, but, the, but the, the different martial cultures on display in different people's memoirs and the uh, approaches and attitude to war are fascinating. Because... He is a sort of, I think he's a sort of self-styled Spartan holy warrior in a way. Totally. Uh, Gavin. Yeah. Um, whereas the Brits are like, oh, well, if we're going to have to bloody fight the bloody Germans again. They're like, I mean, the, 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 the reason cliches exist, after it's all. Because is because they're true. It's because they're true. And the Germans are either, um, we will we will do the Führer's bidding and fight to the last round. Or, the, or they're the classic, like, um, uh, reluctant reluctant uh, soldier well I, I must fight so be it and I'm really going to have to make the best of a bad situation I've been let down by the people at the top and the different martial cultures on display in in those personal accounts are fascinating but they're not what we're here to talk about we're here to talk about the Battle of well, Britain yes but so, just wait till you get to Dante Ugo Leonardi well I can't you know the, well, the, the Italian yeah, battalion the, commander he's just hilarious the Italian, the Italian martial traditions of course which is something else right anyway. so now, now um, I want to ask this question, but then I want to talk. There's a thing I want to talk about that goes with it. Um, Zach Wood says, I've always wanted to know what was the top scoring squadron during the battle? Mm. I've read several books and they each seem to vary in statistics. What was the top scoring squadron? Uh, I think it's the 303 Konishko squadron, the Polish squadron. I don't think there's much debate about that. I mean, the 609 squadron based at Middle Wallop, um, they were the first to get to 100. um, But obviously they were in it. From July, so you know they were there. Yeah, well, they were, yeah, actually, they they were engaging yeah. the enemy on the eighth of July, for example. Um, yeah, so even before the Battle of Britain officially begin, begins, but I think it's the three hundred three squadron is the, is the is the number one. Right, right. Well, because the, the the thing that that comes a, a, away from this that I want to talk about is famously um, uh, during the Battle of Britain. In fact, during the Second World War, you have you have claim and counterclaim. Whatever's in the newspaper that day about what happened in either in either in, in you know Deutsche Bärbacht or whatever or in the Times, uh, Volkische Bärbacht or the, the Times, yep. they're wrong. Yeah. They're ro- the, the newspaper reports are <coughs> consistently and regularly totally wrong, aren't they? Right. But <laughs> James, uh, I can see James on Zoom. He's just produced a, a, a vast slate grey volume from low down in his uh, bookshelves. Right. But. The governments do this, and they do this for good reason, which is, of course, to keep everyone's uh, pecker up, right? Yeah. They've got to say that the enemy sent... Um, uh, 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 well, what they have to say routinely is the enemy sent less planes than last time because the enemy is losing. Yes. Um, we shot down more planes than last time because yes. the, we are winning, and yes. we lost less planes than last time because we are winning. Yeah. And obviously, you end up with this... And Victor Klemperer writes very well about this, about how Nazi superlative language um, degenerates to the point where it becomes meaningless. So the enemy was annihilated yesterday. He always he writes this sort of thing. Well, that, you know, they, in the paper they said that the that the enemy was annihilated yesterday. Well, then why are we still fighting him today? You know, Russian forces were totally smashed at this place. Well, then why isn't the war over? And yeah. what's the what's the gap? At what point do governments go? Ah, maybe we're maybe we've overrated the pudding here. We're being irresponsible. And what do they? The other thing is, is what do they actually know? Because because squadrons are reporting back 
you know, uh, if you've got a shared kill, five people have shared a kill, it, it could be the same plane. It could be two planes. They may not have actually shot anyone down. The guy might have got back across the channel. At what point does the air ministry know the difference between what the RAF squadrons are claiming, what the uh, what the Luftwaffe are actually uh, um, suffering in terms of losses? Because this, this is a like a key component of how the battle's presented in public. Yeah. So so what happens is you get you get the immediate kind of sort of you know the uh, the, the, the sort of early exit polls. Um, yeah. which, which gives you a kind of, sort of vague idea. And that's where you get the kind of sort of, you know, 176 shot down or whatever it was on the yeah. Battle of Britain day, yeah. 15th of September, which is nothing like it. Um, and that's because the, pro, the that, that's the immediate response. Yeah. Then um, people get, uh, then they have to check their gun camera footage, which obviously you don't necessarily do on precisely the same day. Not for everyone yeah. in particular. has been a big melee. It can take a little bit of time to get through all that. So then mm-hmm. clearer picture comes. Um, then there is analysis of downed aircraft as well. So you're starting to get a pretty good picture within a matter of days. But obviously for the newspaper headline, you want it by kind of five o'clock that afternoon, the previous the afternoon before yeah. the program uh, yeah. comes out. And after that, well, there's no point correcting it because, you know, it was, it was quite high, so it doesn't really matter. Then subsequently after the war, there is then painstaking work. And that's why I was producing this hefty tome, which is, which is for anyone who's interested in the Battle of Britain. This is just an absolute have to have purchase um it's not a book that you can read cover to cover but this has got detailed analysis of every single plane that was shot down or damaged in the battle of britain and it is (laughs) widely considered to be the last word on this so so you know when i've been spouting statistics at you that it comes from this when i was doing my battle of britain work and uh, on on the book and everything this is the book i used and quite often i was having to go through day by day and adding up and counting and kind of going okay that's that and double checking and all the rest of it and that's where you get your, your your figures from. And those are very, very accurate. And I have to say for the same, you know, it's the same with the Germans. The Germans, you know, you have to, when you, before you get award, officially awarded your kill, you have to kind of, you know, you have to talk through your after action report. It has to kind of um, um, compare with others and all the rest of it. What the reason why they have these experts and who are sort of knocking down zillions like sort of Adolf Galland and Mulders yeah. and all the rest of it and, and Helmut Vick is... Because once you start becoming the top scoring ace, you are basically your job is one hundred percent to just shoot down as many aircraft as possible, and everyone else is there to protect you. So, yeah. so you don't you're not worrying about who's on your ass. You're you're just homing in on that because you're the squadron's best shot. And there is a kind of sort of very good practical reason for that. You know, yeah. Because if you're the best shot and shooting down aircraft is incredibly difficult, then you might as well be. Yeah, given yeah, as, be- as best a chance. You know, it's, it's, I mean, think of it like the striker in a football team. Yeah, yeah, you know, you obviously put him up front and you feed him the ball so he can slot them in the net. It's, a, it's sort yeah. of the same kind of principle in a way. Um, but the British just do it in a different way, you know. And, and obviously yeah. they're in a defensive battle, so they're responding to a situation rather than going after people. I mean, the interesting thing that, about yeah. about the, the the 303 squadron is that there's a number of reasons why they are the, the they are the um, um, the highest scoring. One of them, of course, is is because. Uh, they get in very close and they shoot them down. You know, they're, they're very aggressive pilots. Yeah. Um, and they've got that kind of sort of, you know, I hate you, you bastard, I'm going to kill you kind of attitude, which a lot yep. of RF pilots just don't quite have for all sorts of yep. very obvious reasons. The second reason is that is they're because they're in hurricanes and so therefore they're attacking mainly bombers, not entirely, of course, yep. because it's not as simple as that. But for the most part, they're at low heights operating against the bombers and bombers are easier to shoot down than than, than um, single engine fighter, fighter planes. planes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, the third reason is, is because they're operating Operating from from Norfolk, um, in, in from the beginning of September 1940, where, where suddenly that's when the change happens from the 7th of September, where suddenly 
you've got a mass of aircraft coming towards London every single day rather than splitting up all over the place, which yep. makes them harder to shoot down um, and more, you know, there, there isn't that sort harder of Harder to vector onto and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah harder to vector onto, but also the, the, the number of targets is less because you, you're attacking a rate of sort of 10 or 15 rather than a rate of, yeah. kind of 300. Um, yeah. So those are the three reasons why. It's, 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 it is a lot to do with... with Polish bravery and skill and all the rest of it, but it is also happenstance to the stage, stage yeah. of where they're based and the time they come into the battle and the, and the planes they're operating. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Glenn Towler asks, um, do you think the bombing of Berlin really changed the course of the Battle of Britain or would the Luftwaffe have started bombing London regardless of what Bomber Command did? Hmm, that's a really, really good question. I don't know, but um, I don't think they would have attacked as early as that. Um, they were definitely goaded into the battle, and I think they would have probably carried on attacking the airfields. I d- again, I don't think it would have made any difference because they weren't attacking the airfields very successfully. I mean, yeah. you know, it's important to understand that when we're talking about, um, 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 you know, attacking the airfields. I mean, I mean, this is this is this is quite interesting. So let me just very very quickly talk you through what happens on Thursday, the fifteenth of August, nineteen forty. So yeah. this is when we're still at the attacking the airfield stage. This is two yeah. days after Eagle Day. So between yeah. nine o'clock and ten thirty, there are um, reconnaissance operations by Luftwaffe in formations of about six at a time, and none of them yeah. are intercepted. Then between ten forty-five and eleven thirty, there are thirty-plus enemy aircraft began to uh, are picked up on on home chain, which is the long ra- longer range radar at around yeah. Cap Green A, moving from Cap Green A. Um, scrambled for that are 501 Squadron 54, 56 and 615. Um, 1129, enemy crosses the coast near Dungeness in two formations and then turns north. 501 Squadron meets 20 plus Stukas and six ME 109s at 10,000 feet. So that's 26 enemy aircraft, which is, you know, it's not yeah. a lot, really. No. You know, that's not a lot. So that's 12 attacking 26. That's not massively outnumbered by any stretch of imagination. Um, um, uh, but they are able to attack them out of the sun, so yeah. th- they have that advantage. advantage yeah. So that sort of negates the, the numerical loss, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Second enemy form- formation engaged by fifty-four squadron attacked forty-plus ME one hundred nines at sixteen thousand feet. So twelve against forty-one hundred nines. That's quite a big tussle, and that's not yeah. very good. But the Germans scatter and turn back to France. They've run out of fuel. So, yeah. so the moment they're attacked hard, they're just like, well, we're off ski. So that, yeah. they're gone. So that doesn't really achieve anything. Um, meanwhile, 40-plus Stukas and 40-plus ME109s, um, they drop bombs on Dover, High, Folkestone and Hawkinge. Dover's right. not really doing a lot. It's a port, you know, but that's no airfield yeah. there. Um, so that's yeah. that. There's none, there isn't one at Hive either. Um, the only serious damage from all that is on Limp, which is an airfield right. which is just, yeah. you know, just a little bit to the west of, of Dover. Yes. Um, so Luftwaffe are attempting to hit forward airfields um, in Kent, but only one received much damage, which is limp. Two or four squadrons um, scrambled, successfully intercepted. Later on, there's um, Luftwaffe five attacks from the north, which we talked about the other day. Yeah. Um, um, five squadrons scrambled to meet those. Um, 1245, 72 squadron engaged, blah, 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 blah. You know, and that's sort of basically it. You know, and that, that's it. So overall, some 200 enemy aircraft attacked in several waves, inflicting little damage, except to Bomber Command Airfield at Driffid. That's the one in the north. So, um, and, then, uh, and, then, and then between 2.30 and 4.15, Dover and the Thames, this is the third big operation of the day. So the first operation is that kind of little scattered sort of, you know, yeah, in yeah. the morning. Then you've got the one in the north, which we talked about, that attack on Driffield, yeah. you know, yeah, which Cocky yeah, yeah, Dundas which is involved badly, in and all yeah. the rest of it. Yeah, it goes very yeah. badly because they're not escorted. Then between 2.30 and 4.15, you've got Dover and Thames Estuary, third big operation of the day. 
enemy plots picked up 30 plus in Calais area at, at, at 14 14 uh, 15 plus enemy aircraft at Santa Mer, which is bombers. Then 50 yep. plus by the time they're approaching Limp at 15:30, 3:30 in the afternoon. Yeah. 228, 20 plus north of Santa Mer, and 100 plus in the Straits and 50. So what they're doing now is they're sending over several rays, each of kind of yeah. sort of 50 to 100 at a time. Yeah. That's a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. Um, yeah. Um, and that's sort of it. That's it for the day. And they don't, again, they don't really achieve a huge amount. You know, so you see, I, the whole thing, it's, it's, there's a lack of focus, there's a lack of schwerpunk, there's a lack of kind well, of, you know, it all sort of, you know, don't really know what they're doing. Well, which 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 brings me like sort of tangentially to the big wing, you know, um, the, uh, uh, the Germans aren't doing big wing, are they? No, but well, they sort of are because they're, they're, they're massing well, they sort 50. Of, the trouble is they're yeah. massing 50, you know, every if you mass. OK, so that's really interesting. So you've got those those, um, um, you know, 50 plus ME 109s. Okay, yeah. so okay, they're all in the Pas de Calais area, so they're all in airfields like Calais yes. Grise, Calais Mark, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, um, they're all they're all fairly close together, <clears throat> but you've got to take off, then you've got to form up. Yeah, yeah. Before you've even set sail, it's kind of half an hour's gone. Yeah. Then you've got to get across the channel. Then you've got to attack. You've got your ten minutes. Then you've got to bugger off back again. I mean, it's yeah. just. The big, the problem with the big wing is the time it takes to form up. Yeah, which yeah. then means the time you've got in the combat zone is really, really small. You know, yeah. the most effective way to attack airfields is to send in a, a, a few, like half a dozen Junkers, followed by half a dozen, you know, ME one one O's and and one O nines with yeah. bombs to just go in low under the radar, come in and all the rest of it. But you know, for example, on the on the fourteenth of of August, I think it is, you know, um, Middle Wallop is attacked by a lone Junkers 88. Yes. Causes a huge amount of damage, destroys a hangar, kills lots of yeah. um, ground crew, all the rest of it. So, so but it's probably drip... shot down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it kind of, therein lies the rub. But that, so, so what, so what, what, what you get from it is whatever they, whatever they do, they don't, I mean, we talked about this the first time around, whatever they do, they don't have the weight to be able to do it. They don't um, have the weight. Uh, in in a in a schwerpunkt in a knockout blow. No, so, and so all, they end all, up having a, to do this this sort of scattered approach, yeah. and the scattered so, approach is good because it's much more confusing for fighter yes. command to respond to. But it's also not terribly effective because the scattered approach means you haven't got enough on any one thing, which means you then end up having kind of you know twenty Dorniers attacking Northfield and putting it under dice, but they all go, you know but it's just repaired again. So mm. so. Whatever you you can make yourself more effective to take on the British air defence system, but in so doing, you then lack the punch. Yes, to get yeah, yeah. the punch you need takes too long, and you therefore also lack the punch because yeah. you're not over there long enough, and and yeah. you, you know it's not effective enough. So whichever but, way you do, it, you know, if you want to destroy a city, you need three and a half thousand heavy bombers yeah. over kind of you know. Well, I was conditions. just I was just going to say this is a problem that takes bomber command four years to solve. How well, you do three this. years certainly yeah three years three 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 years well or you could argue that the the strategic bombing offensive doesn't tip until late forty four so um a, a, a actually into complete dominance so it 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 takes all this it take you're not going to do it in four three four days for yeah. a start and you're not going to do it in a couple of months over the summer but but you, you know the point you made last week was, was that this is all incredibly new and and it's incredibly new yeah. when you're on the ground it's yeah. incredibly new when you're a spitfire pilot and having to intercept it you know you've yeah. never seen anything like this before and certainly the scale of the battle of britain the effort by the luftwaffe 
is certainly bigger than anything that's ever been achieved. Yeah. This is the yeah. biggest air battle ever. Yeah. And it looks terrifying. And when you, again, you know, when you're on the ground and you're seeing all this stuff come over and you're seeing these contrails and these incredible battles, it looks, it, you know, it looks like the Battle of Waterloo played yeah. out in the air over your, over yeah. Kent. Yes. But, you know, from the perspective of time and, and even from the perspective of just a couple or three years of kind of the Second yeah. World War, it yeah. is, it is very small beer in terms of kind of the scale of what's to come. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reason the scale is so massively increased is because there's lots of people observing the Battle of Britain from uh, and, and the Blitz from Arthur Harris at the Air Ministry coming out on the roof and watching the East End burning through to Tui Spots coming over as an yeah. observer and all the rest of it and going, you know what? This isn't enough. This is never going to do it. And, and one of the yeah. key people there, Tui Spots, who later commands 8th yeah. Air Force, later becomes the kind of, you know, head of strategic air command in um, in, in Britain in early 1944 for the US, all US um um, strategic air forces in Europe. Yeah. You know, he's learned right from the word go. He can. He's a bomber man. He's an airman, and he comes over yeah. and he goes, "Yep, I can see why people are getting a head up about this, but this is no way near big enough. Yeah. And the Luftwaffe are never going to win." And he's yeah. bang on the money. Well, that's all we got time for. We, I think we did. Jesus, we did. we've done forty-eight minutes already. Yeah, yeah, we have, James. We've oh. done it again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, maybe there's going to have to be a Battle of Britain PS in three weeks' time or something. Yeah, or in September like. or something. Yeah, in September. Maybe, maybe come back to in September. Let the battle rage and we return to it in September yeah. for a sort of final analysis. Um, that was that was all really, really good. I thought really, really interesting. I've got to go read James's um, new audiobook, Sicily 43, which, of course, won't read itself. Yeah. Although you can actually get these to read themselves. You get a strange robot voice, don't you? Yeah. And now the Panzer Division Hermann yeah. Gavin and into <laughs> <laughs> and Gavin uh. Bard at Standartenführer, <laughs> etc. etc. Yeah, et yeah. It doesn't quite work. It doesn't have the kind of dulcet tones you have. That's for sure. Oh, uh, um, and very excitingly, I am expecting a finished copy to arrive today. Ah, oh, brilliant. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's always a big moment. It's a weird moment with that with a book because you, you you get it and it's kind of you know it's the one thing that you've been building yeah. towards from the moment you kind of write line one in your in your, you know in your garret in yeah. Cornwall, um, and then suddenly it comes in. You go, wow, look at that, look at that, <sighs> look at that. And you flip through, yeah. inevitably find a typo, then feel really grumpy, put it down, and you go, right, well, um, what now? Go on the next one then. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I I sent in my manuscript to the end of last week, and I, oh, well I, I, done. I, yeah, but it needs it it, it actually needs a, a proper. I need to do a proper comb through and cut some chaff. I know I do. I know I do, and I know that's the conversation I'm going to have at the end of this week. But um, I sent it in on Friday, and with a new, I rewrote the introduction and and I wrote a postscript for it, and I sent it off, and everyone, I got a bounce back. Everyone's on holiday, and you think you fuckers. No, you've no, got your text. So and you're all on holiday. Well, no. Well, well congratulations on getting to the end because it's a big thing yeah. getting to the end. It is. it is a big thing getting to the end. But when you when it's got jokes in it, you you look back at the jokes and you think, what was I thinking? That doesn't work. Well, that's the wrong way around. What's anyway? I must go. Great to see you, James. Yeah, and you. Cheerio, everyone. Yep. Take it easy. Cheerio, everyone. Bye.